Brian Traherne is a professor of English at yeah. McGill University in Montreal with an interest in Canadian poetry, particularly... Particularly poetry of the modernist period, the first half of the 20th century. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's the 100th anniversary of the birth of Irving Leighton this month. And so I'd like to talk to you about, first of all, your take on Leighton's position within the Canadian poetical canon to start with. It's a good question, and I think it's a pressing one right now. I guess there's two ways of answering that. Uh, Where do I think he should be, and where do I think he is? And I'm afraid those have very different answers. Let me start on the negative. Right now, it seems to me that Leighton is almost disappearing from the Canadian literary canon, at least in the academic or the teaching version of that canon. So I'm, I think, one of the few people who teach his work regularly at the university level. And when I do research, I find that almost nothing is written about on Irving Leighton in the last 10 years. My colleagues are not paying attention. And indeed, my own last writing on Leighton is now well over 10 years ago. So in that sense, I guess I'd say that professors of literature, the the academic version of Leighton, I think we're being inattentive. And I regret that very much. To to dwell on the more positive... Priscilla, why do you think there's this neglect then? Well, I think it has something to do with a kind of uh, political reading of this very arrogant, masculine, brash, judgmental voice in his poems. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the feminist reaction that he, let us say, candidly brought on himself and encouraged with interviews, conversations with Margaret Atwood. He, uh, he invited uh, a sharp feminist judgment of his work, and he's received one. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has a lot to do with the current neglect. I think a lot of critics today just cannot see around some of the lines in the poetry, and I think they're often taken out of context. There's a very famous or infamous line in whatever else poetry is freedom, where he talks about the blackened eye he gave his Kate, and put that back into context in the poem, and it means something a little more than it might sound out of context. But I've certainly taught students over the years who just can't get past that line. And I suspect a lot of readers have a reaction like that. This isn't got to do with Shakespeare's Kiss Me, Kate. I think think it is, actually, because Mm -hmm. the timing is perfect. I think Kiss Me, Kate was early 50s, and the poem is mid to late 50s. So I think it's very much sort of an echo of that treatment of the Taming of the Shrew. And, And again, that's the kind of thing I want to ask. Okay, why is he doing this? I don't believe that Leighton urges us to hit our cates, and so what's the line doing in the poem? But I don't know if that many critics are asking that question really carefully. And so I think that's, that's a substantial part of it. Now, I think if you want a, a simple statement, I think Leighton is easily one of the five most important poets Canada has produced. I've got no qualms saying that. And so his neglect today is, to me, pretty scandalous. Uh, We had, and and perhaps in Ottawa you had a a centenary event last week organized by Andre Farkas and a number of other people. 
his son Max was involved, I think, in uh, setting the, uh, or at least getting the, getting the ball. Oh, I didn't realize that. So to speak, that. rolling. Okay. They remarked at the beginning of the event that they had an agreement with Chapters Indigo, whatever that company is called, that there would be a display of Irving Layton books in the window for two or three days around the time of the centenary. And uh, they had announced this as part of their publicity. And when the event was drawing near, they went to look at the display. There was no display. They asked to see a book by Irving Layton. There was one copy of one book in the entire bookstore. And no one in the Montreal Indigo had been told by head office that this was supposed to happen, or so they claimed. So the neglect is severe. It's not, he's not the only poet of his era to be forgotten in this way, not by a long shot, but he is being forgotten, I would argue, and that he is a poet of the strength he is. I, I, to me, this is quite a scandalous matter, far more scandalous than anything he had to say in his time. What's interesting, though, is that I've heard that uh, there were several hundred, two to three hundred people that showed up to the event in Montreal, and, and that in itself uh, is quite quite the opposite of scandalous. It's it's in, incredible mm-hmm. for that number of people to show up to a to a poetry reading. I think you're right. May I be just a little cynical and say that at the advanced age of 54, I was one of the youngest people in the room, and mm. express a fear that those people were remembering the poet they had loved in their youth or in their prime. And I was rather dismayed to see so few people visibly under the age of 40 at the event. And and so I think he has an audience, but it may not be renewing itself. Now, we often heard in the course of the evening about how popular he is in Italy. And this has long been recognized that Italians have a special response. You know, it's interesting. Sorry. That Mordecai Richler is also extremely popular in Italy. I didn't know that. In fact, Richler is arguably one of the best Canadian novelists to have written. One of the best two or three, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think Leighton, you can say the same thing of in, in poetry. And they both came from Montreal. They both had, I'm, I'm not sure about Leighton, but, but it was a fairly strict Jewish upbringing. They had strong uh, mothers and weak fathers, mm-hmm. and they're two of the best that we've ever produced. How, how do you uh, explain that? Well, I don't know if I know enough about Italy and Italians to explain it, but wouldn't it be fascinating if we did? I, I can only guess that part of the appeal is that both Richler and Leighton are writers who depict Montreal if not explicitly, then an apparent Montreal, so richly, so passionately, their work is so embedded in place. And perhaps that place that we are in the middle of mm-hmm. has a kind of exoticism of appeal. But that doesn't explain why Italians more than, say, Germans or the English mm-hmm. or what have you. Well, maybe so, they admire this stuff. There's a couple of things going on. There's passion with, with Leighton, and, uh, and there's a sort of a political incorrectness mm-hmm. with Richler. 
Well, we have to admit that the Italians until recently were very happy to elect and re-elect a notorious womanizer. <laughs> and so, while I don't want to generalize too much from that, maybe there's something about Leighton that appeals to a certain idea of manhood or masculinity yeah. that yeah. is still current with some Italians. Yeah, kind of macho uh, bravado. Could be. But what, what about their upbringing and the fact that they were able to produce such, uh, such great work? Well, I think in Leighton's case, he always attributed his ear for rhythm and his vituperativeness to his mother. Uh, she was, as in, in that wonderful poem he wrote for her, which I think is one of his finest, Kaine Lazarovich, she was apparently an eminent cursor and <laughs> arguer with God. Uh, and certainly his depiction of her chimes beautifully with his idea of himself and of what poetry is for. So I think that would be pretty formative. In his memoirs, he talks about this part of Montreal, where he grew up, as a place of pretty severe contest between the Anglophone kids and the Francophone kids, mm -hmm. and the Jewish kids were automatically subsumed into the Anglophone armies of the night. And uh, he has vivid stories to tell of the anti-Semitism his family suffered. And Montreal is a, is a cauldron of these things. And I suppose that has something to do with the kind of energy he wanted to express as a writer. I think that's right. The, the tension that's there, the strife, that was a big part of, of what may have produced this. Mm, I think so. He celebrates strife. He is a poet who, I was just talking about this with a wonderful undergraduate class recently. He's a poet who, at least in the early days, wants to celebrate just pure process, the, mm -hmm. the energy of things, rather than this set of good things and this set of bad things. And I think maybe because Montreal is a city that has a certain kind of vibrant energy that is unpredictable, that doesn't always go in the directions you want it to go, we see something like that sense of himself as a Montrealer getting into the poetry. What's interesting, too, is that he notoriously sort of condemned Canadians as dull and, and, and quite the opposite of what we've just been talking about. Mm. And yet he's, uh, he's celebrated. It's a bit like Trudeau, who's un-Canadian, and Canadians love him. But you're suggesting that uh, that maybe Canadians don't love uh, Leighton because of the brash front that he displayed in, in public. Well, I think when he condemns Canadians, he always seems to me, though he rarely specifies, seems to me pretty clearly to be condemning the Anglo-Canadian. He has poems in which he's explicitly condemning wasps or Protestants or their use of English. And unlike Richler, who we've been mentioning a little bit, Leighton doesn't give us, in poetry, very much attention to the French fact of Quebec. Whereas Richler, of course, just became more and more consumed with that in, in later nonfiction writings. So I think when Leighton thought about Canadians, and I guess we might say this is a, a set of blinkers of his time, he thought very much about English Canadians, mm -hmm. and he thought about their repressions, and, uh, and he also thought about Canadian Jews, and, and had often scornful things to say about them, just as Richler did, and, and no doubt in the process of feeling such scorn, he didn't endear himself to the communities he was scorning, 
And so it's interesting to think about both writers as men who play very much on an antipathy with the audience they actually desire. And perhaps those chickens come home to roost eventually and, and we see a period of neglect. I feel fairly sure that we will see a, a revival of Leighton's reputation, but gradual. Perhaps we'll have to forget the man for a longer time yet Separate before the poems. we just go back to the poems and right. think about them. And again, we don't want to get too psychoanalytical here, but apparently his father was engaged in various texts, ancient religious texts. A lot of his, a lot of his life was spent with those ignoring his own offspring. And uh, it seems to me that Leighton very much was after some sort of attention, if not for himself, then for poetry as a whole. I think that's fair. Um, I might just go a, a bit farther with that and suggest that it seems very important to Leighton in the poetry to say, in other words, over and over, I am a man, I am a man and to, to celebrate a version of manhood. Of course, it's become a very unfashionable version, mm-hmm. but to celebrate a very large and loud version of manhood. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if, just to follow your thought, we might guess that perhaps that image of the... His word is always ineffectual, his mm-hmm. ineffectual father. And that image of the ineffectual father and the very powerful mother is something that he was always, in some sense... I don't want to be psychoanalytic either, but maybe compensating for or overcompensating mm-hmm. for yeah. in the bigness of his male voice. He certainly developed early on and maintained all his life a scorn for the scholarly and academic frame mm-hmm. of mind, uh, which no doubt, again, doesn't, doesn't invite a lot of academics today to spend their time on his poetry. I think it is very important to think about ideas of masculinity and to think about them carefully in Leighton, because I think he's often very shallowly read. I think he has, a, in fact, a much more complex idea of masculinity than he's given credit for. I think in the richest poems, in the, the poems of the 50s and early 60s, we so often see the, the big-voiced men of his poems being dismembered, torn apart, mocked, drifting or or permeable in different ways. And I think that's something that we don't think about enough, that these are poems that are more interested in creating tension between loud, aggressive manhood and a kind of vulnerable manhood than people like to think. I I read somewhere that uh, that's how uh, Northrop Fry categorized Leighton as as not necessarily this belligerent uh, alpha male, but mm-hmm. rather insecure. Well, there's a great line in Birth of Tragedy where he calls himself, one of his best-known poems, where he calls himself a quiet madman never far from tears. It's astonishing as you flip through Leighton's books how often the persona in a poem falls into tears. And and so there's a an aspect of masculinity you wouldn't expect from him. And to finish your line, or his line, I lie like a slain thing under the green air the trees inhabit. Or another poem of that period, Cold Green Element, he talks about his heart beating in the grass as he goes on speaking. And he talks about his murdered selves. I I always think that what we have in this very loud, aggressive masculinity 
or let us say, to, to restate that thought, the flip side of that loud, aggressive masculinity is a keen sense of, of danger, of uh, the possibility of violence being done. I think one thing we might eventually want to talk about is the Holocaust subject mm-hmm. in Leighton's poetry, and it is a curiosity of his career that he really doesn't take it up as a subject for poetry until the mid-60s. I think there are various reasons for that, but just to follow the present thought, I think what we see in the 1950s poems before that happens is a man who feels that the world is predicated on unpredictable violence and is trying to report that world accurately, but is not yet able or willing to think of that as the shadow of the Holocaust. But I feel very much that those poems are in the shadow of the Holocaust in some way. Mm. And I do feel like the the force of the masculinity in the poems is partly his response to that sense of vulnerability. So then you'd say that the uh, the accusations of misogyny are misplaced then? No, I wouldn't go that far. I think it's fair to call Leighton a misogynist. I, I really don't have any way around that. Why don't you have any way around it? Well, when he says things to Margaret Atwood like, Margaret, the creativity of women is not artistic, it's biological. Of course, he's grandstanding, he's trying to create a ripple, and to be sure, he's trying to sell some more of his books. And so I don't hold him absolutely to that belief word for word. But no, I think as we look through interviews and essays, I think this was a misogynist. What I wouldn't say is that that misogyny carries forward straightforwardly into the poems. He was too good a poet for that, and poems don't work that way. They're not flat platitudes. If they are, they're not very good poems. And so I think we could say perhaps there are poems that are more and less misogynist. But by and large, I think the misogyny of the poems, when it appears, is their least interesting characteristic. And there is also, I think, a great deal more tongue-in-cheek about Leighton's misogyny than people have given him credit for. Yeah, I think this attempt to get attention or to cause controversy is, if not central, then certainly a big part of what he was up to. And I think, frankly, it cost him. When you play the shock game Mm -hmm. with your audience, you're eventually trapped into a, a kind of endless cycle of one-upmanship. I shocked you with this a year ago, so now I have to shock you a little more, and now I have to shock you a little more. Soon enough, your audience thinks, oh, that's Leighton, he's shocking. They've pegged you, right? They've pegged you now, and I think he was quite aware of the danger of being entrapped by an image of himself. I should just quickly mention that a fine doctoral dissertation was written by a student of mine named Joel Deshaies, about Leighton and celebrity. And Joel talks a lot about the way in which Leighton seems to anticipate an audience that is coming at him, that will pin him down or cage him in some way. And after a while, the the attempt to shock your way out of audience expectation just fails because what they're expecting is exactly that maneuver. Mm -hmm. So I think he does entrap himself a little bit in that way. He traps himself in that sense in misogynistic remarks that he may not actually have held a hundred percent, but he thinks that might shock people again. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's a dangerous game to play. But he's trying to do that with his poetry, too. Oh, yeah. He uses very, very aggressive, strong verbs. And mm. In just as a matter of style, yes, mm-hmm. I completely agree. And, of course, there's also just there's a lot of violence in the poetry. One yeah. of the things I always zero in on when I'm teaching his poetry is all the suffering animals mm. and the violence done to animals, which I think in some degree, at least until about 1965, they stand in in his imagination for the Jews. And I think that's why we see so many mutilated, violated animals in Leighton's poetry. And that is a shocking content, and, and he, he has what I think is the honesty not to pretend that he is better than the rest of us. And so sometimes he'll give you a poem where the speaker of that poem happily kills an animal or, or is cruel to an animal. Or feels or expresses this instinctual, and I'm thinking of Cain here, where he talks about, you know, I want to kill, 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 you right. know. Uh, again, a very aggressive male sentiment. Right. Now, that's a great example of what we were talking about earlier, that poem, where the male, I will use the word performance, the, the, the performance he puts on in that poem is very explicitly male because he's killing this frog in front of his son. And so we're thinking about our son watching us as we kill something and what it will mean to him and what it will say to him about us as men. He frames all of that in such a complex way. So we've got on the one hand, I think, the masculinity drive in that poem. And then I think we've also got, and this is where I think the poem is so complex, we've got a speaker of the poem who to me is certainly not Leighton in any straightforward way. It's not Leighton who kills the frog in Cain, he's actually creating a fiction, he's creating a character who speaks about this action, but that character is, in a sense, he's the butt of the joke in that poem. In fact, what's the last line in the poem? A joke we didn't quite hear. There's some joke in this poem, and I think the joke is on us. And look at the title, right? If I kill that frog, I am Cain killing Abel. And so, and, and our speaker doesn't seem to know about that title, doesn't understand that he's killing his brother. So Leighton has set up this beautiful fabric around this act of violence that makes it so much more than a celebration of violence. I don't think it's a celebration of violence mm-hmm. at all. It, it, it is so complex in what it's asking us to think about. So that's a poem where I think he needs, he needs desperately to be reread by good readers who will think about what he's saying there about violence. Perhaps we can get to the ultimate shock, and that is, as, as you've touched on, the, uh, the Holocaust and his blaming of Christianity for the Holocaust. Yeah, I, uh, I think that is a part of the analysis. And he does, of course, he creates that word exianity to summarize Christianity because like his, his philosophical mentor Nietzsche, he can sometimes make a distinction between Jesus and Christianity. That's often a very important thing for him to do. I haven't been as interested, I must say, in the poems that are concerned to make that connection because they never seem to me the most compelling ones. And the poems of the Holocaust that have grabbed my attention do so well. We were talking earlier about shock value, and that's how you brought the issue up. And they do so because they seem 
determined to shock me about the Holocaust, and thus they seem to imply that I, the typical reader, have not been shocked by the Holocaust or have not been sufficiently shocked. So I think that that is the material that puzzles me a bit about those poems, about that decision he makes to treat them in that way. And I guess that in some ways I feel that those poems... These are poems that are appearing as of about 1967. I think the first really notable one is called Rhine Boat Trip. And he's making his first trip to Germany. And as we travel down the Rhine, he's only hearing the ghosts of the dead Jews. And he's seeing these beautiful tourist things, but just hearing the ghosts of the dead Jews. And I think that was the kind of breakthrough poem that that unleashed a, a torrent of such thought. But I have to say that I think one of the rather sad things about Leighton's career in my mind is that, in my judgment, the Holocaust poems are some of his weakest, not his best. And I, I think we have to immediately say that no matter what our judgment of those poems, we recognize the courage of taking up the subject and the near impossibility of finding a good way to represent that subject. I mean, A.M. Klein takes on that burden, and it is arguably part of his eventual mental breakdown. So I think it's not surprising if we feel these poems lacking, but I guess the way in which they lack for me is that the the ethical judgments of Leighton that were once so rich and complex, as we were saying about Cain, suddenly become very flat, very black and white. And not surprisingly, it's now us, what was done to us, against them, what those other people did, and... They were evil, and they killed us good people. Well, they blamed us for killing Jesus. That's right. That's a part of his explanation. And there's also, you know, as if we think about the animal poems again briefly, he, he likes to remind us that humankind seems to want to kill anything that reminds it of its own insignificance by being joyful or not paying attention to us or suggesting that we don't matter like that happy little bird that is crushed by the stone in still life. And I think that's a part of the logic of his explanation, if that's the right word, of what was done to the Jews, that the Jews remind the Gentiles of their own insignificance. And there's also a kind of anxiety of influence thing. The Christian doesn't want to be reminded that his religion is not original. And that's part of it as well. So I think that that logic, Leighton is not, I think, the originator of those mm. thoughts by mm. any means, but that logic does promote, in I, you know, I would say, in the second half of his career, maybe after 1965, a poetry that is much more about judgment. Well, his own word is prophecy. Uh, in the 1950s, you don't hear the word prophecy much in Leighton's thinking about poetry, but as of about 1967, that's what he wants to be thought of. He's a poet-prophet. And I always think of a prophet up on a mountain, looking down at what evil men are doing. That's not quite the Leighton we had in the 1950s. He was doing some of the evil in the earlier poems. So for me, the Holocaust subject, sadly, uh, weakened the later poetry. Not that there aren't fine later poems. That is the way I tend to approach that period of his work. Before we leave the poet, just out of interest, you mentioned that you think he fits into the, the best five, mm-hmm. let's say. Mm-hmm. So who are the other four? Oh, I knew you would ask that. Well, two of them are very easy. P.K. Uh-huh. Page and A.M. Klein uh, are, for me, definitive poets of the 20th century. And for me, the 
other that is easy, though most people would probably not find it so, is Archibald Lampman, the Confederation group poet at the end of the 19th century. So we're up to four. Now that fifth one is a little tricky, and I still might want to dither about that for a while. I suppose everybody would immediately want me to say Margaret Atwood, and although I think she's a fine poet and a better poet than novelist, I'm not sure I've got her at that height in my estimation for what my estimation is worth. And there are fine poets of the early 20th century who are more forgotten than Irving Layton, K.J.M. Smith. And so may I keep the fifth spot for future thought? I was actually expecting to hear Leonard Cohen. Well, he's... I I love his poetry. I'm about to teach it next week, again, for the umpteenth time. And I think he is a very fine poet. But I guess I think of Cohen ultimately as poet, novelist, singer-songwriter, pop phenomenon, all together. And I guess I think of him, therefore, as almost competing unfairly against these other poets who are poets alone. They have enough competition, as it is. Could you speak to uh, why you put Leighton where you do in the canon? Sure. It is, and perhaps it's clear from some of the things I've said, it's primarily for work he wrote before 1965, for what I think are his masterpieces, Birth of Tragedy, Cold Green Element, Whatever Else Poetry is Freedom, Cain, The Bull Calf, Tall Man Executes a Jig. I think these poems stand up against pretty much anything written in the 20th century that I have ever seen. One makes one's estimates of quality, and I guess I could fill that in by saying I love their energy, I love the intensity of their imagery, I think their rhythms are unique and exuberant. Can you get into that then? Unique, exuberant rhythms. If you think about the way some of the poems I've just mentioned move, very often... There's a kind of tension in these poems. He likes, very often, a regular number of lines per stanza. And very often, within a stanza, we will have lines of varying length. And as we move back and forth from longer to shorter lines, we're always, I think, hearing a certain kind of tension there. And he's also brilliant in this period at ending lines or not ending lines where a thought ends. And so very often forcing us into the next line rapidly and sometimes confusingly. And those rhythms, I think, he once talked a characteristic remark, in fact, in the book you have on the table there, about his impeccable ear for rhythm. And I think it was impeccable when he wrote that remark. And these are some of the ways in which I'd characterize it. It's also a free verse rhythm that is nevertheless able always to negotiate a bit with more regular rhythms. He's never going to give you a line of iambic pentameter, Mm. but he will give you some iambic lines, and that can suddenly constellate and give a certain intensity to a passage. So that's some of the ways in which I would think about it. Any other reasons you put him at the top? I don't know anybody else who has his ability to construct a poem as if it has no structure at all. He creates a kind of movement of thought. It can be quite baffling, uh, almost surrealistic. You don't know if things hang together or not. But he can create a kind of movement of thought that is so spontaneous, almost free associative Mm. in the way he will build poems at times. Something like In the Midst of My Fever, which just 
if you if you read casually, just looks like this completely random catalog of apocalyptic events, or or even whatever else poetry is freedom that I think kind uh, of cheekily begins the last stanza saying so whatever else poetry is freedom, as if he'd proved this logically, and the poem is the most I won't say illogical but illogical of structures, and and so that is a quality that I don't find at that height in any other poet. I think that it's something I admire enormously. I, I guess, you know, Leighton liked to trumpet his own dynamism, virility, and energy. And as personal characteristics, those are neither here nor there for me, but as characteristics of poetry, it's something I appreciate. The, the sense of great vitality, the sense of freedom, well, whatever else poetry is, freedom. His, mm. his best poems embody an energy that feels like freedom to me. Mm. And that's not something I can say about many 20th century poets. And perhaps that's, again, part of why he's hard for some people to read and recognize and to place. He was really trying to break the mold. He was obviously a poet, very learned, very much responding to previous poets. But he was trying to break the mold and suggest that we needed this kind of renewal of energy in our poetry. Mm. And I think that does now perhaps retroactively make him harder to read. You talk about logic and the fact that he may not have proved anything, but he, he makes a statement as if he has. Uh, that brings up the Apollonian and the, the Dionysiac mm. and Nietzsche again. And when I think of that, I then think of his character and the sort of strict structural life he may have experienced in childhood. Do you think there's anything in, in that? I'm not positive. I don't want to be contradictory, but I'm not positive that his life was, his childhood life was as strict as, say, someone like Klein's. Mm -hmm. I can't really, I don't know Richler's well enough yet to say, but Klein's was, was very much uh, a kind of orthodox upbringing. He was trained from an early age for the rabbinate and made the, I think, very difficult choice not to pursue that. Um, but Leighton, when he, at least when he tells his story, when his biographer tells the story of his childhood, he seems to be more or less a little savage, running in and out of the house, uncontrolled, cuffed by his mother as necessary, mm. the father ineffectual, studying in his quiet room. So I haven't had that sense. I, I don't believe he had a particularly uh, orthodox religious upbringing in that sense. So and yet I, that's the community that he was in. Indeed, oh, to be sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I think... His family may have been a bit renegade in, in that community. We might just say, just to bring things together a bit here, his fascination with Nietzsche is astonishing, that a Jew should take up Nietzsche immediately after the Second World War, when most people were thinking of Nietzsche as the philosopher of Nazism. Yeah, but that's... As wrong as that is. It's, it's astonishing that he mm. could be as so courageous as to do that. I think it's interesting to think about that Apollonian-Dionysian tension. And to be sure, you're, you're right on in what I was trying to capture about the poems, that kind of anarchic, chaotic energy they have, mm. and that principle of form that they still have is, is very illuminated by that Nietzschean opposition. Without Nietzsche, that's what poetry's about. It's about this wild exuberance that needs the form in order to fire off and, and cause some result. Well, 
I kind of agree with you, and then I think about the history of 20th century poetry, and it's harder to agree with you, since so much of modernism seems to want to be more, well, one of their key words is impersonal. Yeah. They want an impersonal, an objective poetry. Another of the important aspects of modernism is this sense of exhaustion, despair. It's a poetry that wonders if it has the energy to add another line. So I think that I would like to, and I think I more or less share your idea of poetry's drives, but in his time, Leighton was most unusual in adopting such an attitude to poetry, and indeed was scornful of Eliot, of Auden, on exactly these grounds, that they give us a kind of eviscerated version of modern... Cerebral, I suppose. Cerebral, detached, withering apologetic, shuffling. He couldn't bear those qualities. So I think he stands for a poetry such as you described, but that that is at the time by no means the, the character of poetry that was being approved of, that was being canonized. And I think that's, again, where we can certainly you know, praise the courage of the vision. And, and let us remember, he had to self-publish his first either nine or twelve mm. books, at his own expense. With contact? Uh, through contact, mostly. Mm -hmm. Some before that, through First Statement Press, when he was still part of that. And uh, I think, in fact, I believe Red Carpet for the Sun, that won the Governor General's Award for 59, was the first book that he did not publish at his own expense. McLaughlin Stewart. Yes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. we, we can think about the fact that this is somebody who persisted with his vision, churning out a massive number of poems without despair, with incredible self-confidence, until he won an audience. And that book had a huge success. I want to get to that book, but before that I also want to just throw in that uh, Nietzsche was uh, about as misogynistic as you can that you can find. Well, perhaps two meetings, a meeting of two minds then. I or think an influence. Again, well, perhaps an influence, I wonder. I, I don't know if I know enough about Nietzsche's misogyny to think about that yet, but uh, that is an interesting connection between them that I haven't seen much developed. The strange thing is, of course, and although he is vigorously defended, when I read Nietzsche, I have no doubt that he was an anti-Semite. I, I see, of course, so many analyses working hard to tell us that he didn't really mean those anti-Semitic things he said. They were part of a larger point he was trying to make. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I have also seen him say things in clear defense of the Jews. But I think it's curious to think about all of these different lines of influence from Leighton to Nietzsche. And although we have a couple of good scholarly articles on that relationship, that's still fairly few, and it could be, I think, much more thoroughly studied. So I think the, I think the Nietzschean model of creativity, I guess if we take the early Nietzschean model from The Birth of Tragedy, which of course gives Leighton his title, I think it is very pertinent to the way he wants to drive poetry away from its modernist practices, back to something more passionate, more romantic, less polished, less formed. And that being said, I think these are brilliantly formed poems. They just weren't formed in the way that made them easily recognizable to the audience of that day. I'm speaking uh, with uh, Brian Traherne, who is a uh, professor of English at McGill University in Montreal. The book that won the Governor General's Award, A Carpet for the Sun, interestingly enough, I think, 
as an object is one of the most beautiful examples in Canadian book design of, of high-quality content being married with, with high-level design. Frank Neufeld, one of the great Canadian book designers, is responsible for it. Is that so? I didn't know that. This paperback doesn't do justice, but look at the fun that Neufeld has with mm. this book. Mm-hmm. And as such, I think it's one of the most collectible Mm-hmm. Of poetry books, I imagine very valuable today. Well, no, and that's that that's so? and that's one of the that's one of the things that I want to get to, and that is the undervaluing not only of Canadian book design, but also the undervaluing of of the content. That the fact that that a great Canadian poet, you can pick up a first edition of this hardcover book for maybe seventy five bucks, uh, a pittance. Compared to what you'd have to pay for other similarly lauded, mm-hmm. in their country, authors. Mm-hmm. Well, I did just see at that Leighton Centenary we were talking about that Adrian, who runs the Word Bookstore, yeah. had a display and that he had out first editions mm. of Leighton's first two books. They were $1,500 and $1,200. And I guess rarity has a lot to do with this. I don't know what the print run for a red carpet for the sun was, but it was probably pretty substantial. And Meaning probably about 2,000, I would think. By Canadian 20. standards, that is a great yeah. big run, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I guess that might have something to do with it. I, I don't dispute your point at all. This is an undervalued poet and an undervalued industry. On book design, I just was very lucky to supervise an excellent doctoral student who graduated very recently, Michelle Rackham, who has done a lot of work now through her dissertation on relations between Canadian poetry of this period and visual art. And one of the culminating chapters is interested in the development of book design in the modernist presses and publications of the 1950s. So she would have a lot to say. I'll I'll let her find her means of doing so, but she would have a lot to say about the developments in the years just ahead of this book that the McClellan and Stewart designer would no doubt have been thinking of and hoping to best in some way with his design. Yeah, he's central, Frank Neufeld. Uh, he's one of the, the uh, founders of the Typographic uh, Designer Society of Toronto that set up in the mid-50s. Let's then get to the, the, the best poems. We have touched on Kane. Perhaps you could talk to that handful. Well... There are so many things to say about them, it's hard to know where to start. We haven't yet mentioned one of the finest that I I don't think I had in my earlier list, and that's for Mao Zedong, A Meditation on Flies and Kings. It's a superb poem. It's uh, typical of some of the things I've been saying in that it's very, very hard to see any kind of linear progress through an idea that that poem makes. But somehow, by the end, I think we feel a roundness, a completion in its imagery that makes sense of the whole thing. You know, we do have very, of course, uh, with the flies and kings and the celebration of Mao in the title, we have something very uh, Nietzschean here. He is, he is fascinated by the will to power of this great man. Leighton's political judgments are always suspect. They are always temporary. And we know a lot more about Mao and what he was about to unleash on China when Leighton wrote this poem in 1958 than Leighton did. Mm -hmm. So I think we can ignore the 
political judgment for the moment. And after all, that's not a substantial part of the poem. He's thinking there about power, the fact that we all want power, have power, that when something irritates us, like a pesky fly at the beginning of the poem, it is our instinct to crush it if we possibly can. So here again, we see him acknowledging his own complicity and the violence of the world. And as he thinks his way through that, he also very openly rejects Christianity and Buddhism. He, he says, now I've got the smudge of blood of this fly on my fingers, and he sneers, let Jesus and Buddha cry. In other words, I'm not going to cry for this dead thing I've had to kill. It was irritating me. And so the poem kind of develops in that way, and halfway through we're suddenly thinking about the setting of a probably a Laurentian lake, and we hear about moneyed people on the other shore, and here I am, naked with mystery. And then we get those brilliant lines at the heart of the poem. They dance best who dance with desire, who lifting feet of fire from fire weave before they lie down a red carpet for the sun. So he takes the title of the whole book from those lines, and I think many people have really taken that as a kind of latent motto. But then from that high point, we suddenly go on to see trees flaming with the light of the sunset. We enter a woods where we find the graves of other great men, great figures of the past. So this poem really moves with that, well, freedom, that key word for him. It moves with that spontaneity that he valued and I think really, really characterizes the great work of that period. It also contains reference to the sun, which is really a powerful and uh, frequent image that he, he uses throughout much of his poetry. Well, that is partly the Nietzschean influence. Yeah, in, the, in the early Nietzsche, this opposition of the Greek gods Apollo and Dionysus and the cults associated with them gives Nietzsche his understanding of the, the two conflicting energies of art, as you've been saying. And Apollo, among other things, well, he's the form giver, he's the god of poetry, but he is the light giver, and the sun is his vehicle, his symbol. And so one's first thought might be that the sun is somehow embodying the Apollonian principle, the principle of form. But Nietzsche and Leighton with him, eventually they get a little tired of that opposition. It, it doesn't satisfy, and... Both of them eventually turn to Dionysus alone as not the opposite of the Apollonian, but as the synthesis of those two drives. And, and so in, in poetry by about this time, we get the sense that Dionysus is becoming Leighton's god. And although it might seem paradoxical in the earlier vision, Dionysus now gets to own the sun. He is the one associated now with the true energy and life-giving power of the sun. Now, I was going to say, there's, there isn't another image that is more filled with energy that we have, really. Mm -hmm. And vitality. And as he will sometimes do, he reminds us that the sun can also burn us to a crisp, especially if we're not equal to it, to what it demands of us. In fact, even in this poem, don't we have, yes, the moneyed and their sunburnt children. So just a little reminder that some are not equal to this. And it's in, in whatever else poetry is freedom, he talks about, and it's one of the ways in which the, the speaker there makes a little mistake, he talks about, here we are, 
At certain middays I have watched the cars bring me from afar their windshield suns. What lay to my hand were blue fenders, the suns extinguished, the drivers wearing sunglasses, and it made me think I had touched a hearse. So here's somebody who is briefly fooled. He sees the reflection of the sun in human things, and he reaches out for it, and he realizes, ah, it's just the fender of the car or the windshield. And the drivers are wearing sunglasses. They're doing anything they can to shut the sun out. Mm. So you get that sense. So it's, I've touched a hearse. This is death when we try to hide from the sun, as dangerous as it may be to us. So it really becomes a very vital image in the poetry. We see it really throughout the career. That's something that never changes, is the, the meaning of the sun as the, as the energy-giving vitality of things. We also get a lot of talk about shadows and the fact that you know, the sun may be a truth-giving uh, light for us. Yeah, I'm just thinking about at the end of For Mao Tung when the speaker seems to walk into a woods, he says, enter this tragic forest and mark the dark pines farther on, the sun's fires touching them at will, motionless like silent khans. So you get the, the sun's fires touching them at will. It's almost like that becomes the idea of the good in Leighton. <laughs> the people who can let the sun's fires touch them at will with all the danger involved, with the too much illumination that can come with that. Well, and the courage that it takes. Mm-hmm. So his scorn for so much of society, <laughs> I think, is really captured in that image of the drivers wearing sunglasses. Society is about finding a way of shutting out the sun. And that's where a lot of that scorn comes from. What he would call, using a Nietzschean term, the massenmensch, the mass man. That's what the mass man does, is find any way he can to shut out the sun. And he's celebrating the overman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ubermensch. I think that's why we have in that great masterpiece of 1963, a tall man. A tall man executes a jig. And there, of course, the sun in that poem is just such a, a rich, radiant image throughout the poem. Mm-hmm. And it's going down in the course of the poem. And the man is, I think, doing his dance, executing his jig as he tries to understand, you know, if the sun is going down, what am I? Am I still a tall man? And he makes, that tall man makes various mistakes of judgment along the way in that poem. Yeah, there's, a, there's not a fear, but the aging is, is another theme that comes up often. Mm-hmm. The loss of what? Virility or creative capability? What is it in the tightrope dancer? He says something like, I pull vault over the grave. <laughs> and uh, so I guess we could say two things. He knows that grave is down there, but uh, what it's spry and drugged with love, I pull vault over the grave. So there is that preoccupation with aging, but I can't think of too many times when old Leighton looks at the grave and feels chilled or defeated by the thought of his own mortality. There's always that, I am still going to seize this as I die. So, no, I think there is a great concern with mortality in the later poetry, and I think it gives him some of the best of the later poetry. You know, I think one of the ways in which the Holocaust poetry maybe thins out a little bit is that we get the sense that he's forgetting his own mortality in those poems. So preoccupied is he 
with this historical fact of mortality that he's trying to negotiate with. It's almost as if he loses his strength when he focuses on not necessarily an ideological message, uh, or maybe it is that. He's, yeah. he's moving away from the lyrical into something that's um, more polemical. Mm-hmm. And that is mm. not where his poetry's true energy lies. Cohen has a great line. I, I'm going to misquote my apologies to Mr. Cohen, but he says something like, I write out a lot and scratch out a lot as I come to understand my opinions of things. It's only when I get down below my opinions of things that I get interested. Now, that, that's a pretty bad misquotation, I'm sorry. But I think that is something we might think of in Leighton, that no one can fault him for having this passionate opinion about the Holocaust, but it's still an opinion, and maybe opinions don't make great poetry. Actually, there's another, if I may, there's a great line by William Butler Yeats that is on my mind a lot these days. And he says, we make of the quarrel with others rhetoric, but we make of the quarrel with ourselves poetry. Mm-hmm. I think, for me, that's very illuminating of Leighton. It's been said that he needed a better editor. I agree. You know the great line about Shakespeare that Ben Jonson says, uh, would he had blotted a thousand lines, something like that. Right? I think Leighton needed somebody he respected enough to save him from publishing, and again, I would say, probably this is truer after 1965, to save him from publishing pointless squibs and rather silly, satiric barbs that didn't need saying, and lesser poems. I think I've heard it said that late in his life, Picasso was perfectly willing to scribble two lines on a restaurant napkin and sell it to somebody. Yeah, I'm Picasso. Um, that's right. And, and I think maybe Leighton was a little given to that, and, and in that sense, too celebrated, given too much of a leash by Jack McClellan, among others. And I think it is too bad. And, and that, too, I guess, right from the start, we were wondering why he was being neglected. And I think we'd have to say that's probably a part of it, that in this welter of poetry he produced, the dozen great poems that he wrote are hard, harder to find than they should be. And, uh, and indeed, I think he was not the kind to submit to a good editor, but he badly needed one in later life. We don't have to list all 12 of them, <laughs> but let's, well, let's we've, we've do that. Let's, 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 uh, let's just re- recap them, the dozen that you think are and essential. I myself looking at a table of content. Yeah. I think I've mentioned most of, most of them, but I'll, I'll probably top it up a little bit here. The Birth of Tragedy, In the Midst of My Fever, The Bull Calf, The Cold Green Element, The Fertile Muck, Whatever Else Poetry is Freedom, Cain, for Mao Zedong, a meditation on flies and kings. Kaini Lazarovich, a tall man executes a jig. I don't know if I'm quite at a dozen, but you know, as I've said a few times, it kind of thins out for me after that. But those are the ones I would urge anybody, anybody in the world, to read. And I would suggest that their lives were somewhat impoverished if they hadn't. It's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, well, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation very much. It's always good to talk about Irving Leighton. I've been speaking with Brian Treherne, who is Professor of English at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Thanks again.